Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, we'll first be hearing the next installment from our series called Technology and the Future of Work. Dan Churchwell, Acton's Associate Director of Program Outreach, will be speaking with Eugene Kendall, the CEO of Startup Nation Central, a nonprofit organization connecting international business and government leaders with Israeli innovators and technologies, helping them solve their most pressing challenges. Then on our Upstream segment, where we discuss all things culture, Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Phil Nichols, the Senior Advisor for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. Bruce and Phil speak about HBO's Fahrenheit 451, to be released on May 19. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome back to our series on the Acton podcast called Technology and the Future of Work. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I serve as the Associate Director of Program Outreach for the Acton Institute. It's our desire that through interviews with experts and practitioners alike, that this series will delve into some of the most fundamental questions that technology is bringing to the forefront of our everyday lives. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Eugene Candle, the CEO of Startup Nation Central, a not-for-profit organization connecting international business and government leaders with Israeli innovators and technologies that will help keep them to solve their most pressing challenges. Prior to this role, Candle served as the head of the National Economic Council and as an economic advisor to the Prime Minister of Israel. Born and raised in Moscow, Candle immigrated to Israel in 1977 and holds a BA and MA in economics from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and MBA and PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Among his long list of accomplishments, one that sticks out is he advised on the redesign of the NASDAQ and other U.S. markets in the 1990s. Welcome to the Acton Podcast, Dr. Candle. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Your, your new organization seems to be a, a direct extension of the 2009 best-selling book, Startup Nation, by Dan Senor and Saul Singer. Uh, will, will you give us a, a brief history of what it means for Israel to be called a startup nation? Well, it actually starts uh, uh, from, um, uh, like any other innovation, uh, at, the, at the very base of any innovation is the need. And Israeli innovation, a majority of it, can be attributed to solving our existential uh, needs. So when you when you look at the last hundred years, or actually more than hundred years of Israeli history, or before the state was founded, uh, we had to figure out how to uh, feed uh, an ever-growing population in this uh, small uh, piece of land with very little arable land with very little water, how to um, provide medical care, how to provide jobs, how to provide defense in a, in a region which was not that hospitable and basically it was uh, uh, completely overpowering uh, our numbers. So we had to be 
you know, much more uh, technologically advanced. So it, um, solving these existential needs uh, in, could, could have been done in many ways, and some of them would have not led to the establishment of the State of Israel. But luckily, in retrospect, uh, we have chosen, or we were lucky that we, we followed the path of uh, quite innovative solutions to these, to these problems. And uh, the word innovative means that we were just experimenting a lot with, with, um, with the variety of various solutions. And when some didn't work, we chose others. And we, we were successful in figuring out these problems, solutions to these problems for ourselves. Well, and, and if, I, if I have my statistics corrected, Israel is ranked number three out of 144 countries in its global innovation strategy. Uh, it has one startup for every 200 people. Uh, Tel Aviv, I think, is second only to Silicon Valley for its innovative strategy. I mean, is that, are, are those numbers correct? Well, it's actually not 200 people. It's actually 1,500 people. But it's still the high, the, the sort of the 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 densest, the most densely populated country with with uh, innovative companies. That is true. And uh, we were, uh, you know, it's a, it's, we are a small country. I mean, we are less than nine million people. So, in in absolute terms, uh, we are slowly slipping when giants like Beijing and Shanghai and London and uh, other giant uh, areas are, you know, joining the race. And they have been joining the race, fueled by, by in part by realization that you can do it in most uh, unlikely places. When the book came out, one of the, the reasons for success of the book, Startup Nation, was translated to over 30 languages, is that nobody expected it to come out of, of Israel. I mean, this was not, this was, if it wasn't a surprise, I don't think the book would have been as, as popular. I, I've heard you make before the distinction between two types of innovation. Um, type one being the ability to better utilize existing resources to produce higher and better quality and quantity of a good, um, and, and you argue this requires stable environments and strong knowledge base, and then and then you oppose that to type two, this ability to adapt uh, to rapidly changing conditions, um, you know, and that innovation doesn't arise in stable environments and is much less likely to re- rely on historical knowledge. Um, there, thereby, other skills needing to be relied on. It can you talk to me about that? Those two types of innovation. Yeah, you know, there are different countries, different people evolved under different environments. And some of the environments were more stable uh, and continuity was assured, uh, even though, of course, there were wars, et cetera. But basically, you know, people stayed <laughs> for a long time around same profession. So they continuously improved. Human beings are, are very good in continuously improving things. Think about industrial revolution. So suddenly, uh, people are that were used to, to making uh, wool and, and cotton in certain ways, suddenly uh, the, the energy sources come, and suddenly you have all this machinery that can replace hundreds of workers. So uh, how, do you, how do you respond to that? And that is the, another type of innovation. How do you adapt to changing conditions? And so the second type of innovation 
requires a completely different skill than the first one. Because the first one is a stable environment. It basically, um, it basically requires that you learn what your ancestors knew and make small marginal improvements. The second one requires that you figure out that most of what your ancestors knew is no longer relevant. So you actually figure out that industrial revolution has happened even though nobody told you that it was happened. I mean, it was called industrial revolution probably 100 years after it happened. And then what do you do with adapting, very rapidly adapting to this change? How do you change the way you operate? If you were someone making wool garments in your home, what do you do to, to, to stop it and, and, and not starve? This ability to actually experiment and quickly adapt to, to, uh, to new conditions is a cultural thing. And so in that sense, um, you know, Israelis are very, very adaptive uh, based on long Jewish tradition of being adaptive just because we had to be, as well as an Israeli uh, tradition of the last hundred years that they almost made it into an art form. Improvisation, quick sort of trial and error, fail, get up, fail again, get up, and be even even proud of it to have scars to show, and and uh, you know how to how to uh, adapt to to after failure. Now, now I noticed in the book too that it, it it's not only the ability to adapt to failure, but it's the ability to be critical. I, I don't know if that's the term that you, but to ask a lot of questions. Um, out of the that your military is set up a little differently, that their the hierarchy is a little different. Um, people ask a lot of hard and tough questions. Um, some of that comes out of the the Talmudic tradition, if I understand correctly. And uh, is that part of it too? Just asking the hard questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny story, which which will illustrate this. A, a CTO of a large uh, financial institution told me once that I have several uh, R&D centers uh, around the world and one in Israel. And so when I send everybody a request, here's what, here's my problem, here's what I want. From all my other um, R&D centers, I get the response, you know, here's what you asked and here it is. Uh, frequently, I get a response from Israel is that this is not what you want. This is what you want. And he says, what do you mean it's not what I want? I told you what I want. I pay your salary, so please give me <laughs> what I want. But he said quickly, I understood that it's one, one of very few places which is actually going to challenge my authority to even tell them what I want. And even if they're wrong most of the time, even if they're wrong 60% of the time or 40% of the time, the other, the remainder of the times when they are right, it's one of the few places in the world where I can actually get this input. And so when, I'm over, when I got over my anger, I understood that this is a great asset. And so you're absolutely right. It's a society that is very informal, very much, um, very direct. Uh, sometimes people from other cultures find it almost rude. It's not rudeness. It's very much direct. It's a direct approach. We are like that to each other. So it's not something that we do to others. Very, very informal, very task-oriented, very goal-oriented society. So, uh, and and uh, nobody's immune from criticism or or from uh, from hard questions. 
And it is actually in the military it's encouraged, and also in our tradition of learning, what you were talking about, Talmud learning, that's how we, we uh, well, I was not trained in it, but how people were trained in it is historically, you had to argue with each other, and even with your teachers. And essentially, everything is open, though. I mean, you're able to have that conversation. You're able to be direct with one another. But then that leads to helping people ask the right questions and and make some of those innovations. Is is that kind of the move? Is is that what what it what it means? It's you know, it's not the entire society. There are some parts of the society that are actually more open to this than than others, of course. Uh, but that is that is an important part of of the of the culture of this startup scene, which we see, by the way, in other places. No, I, I love that idea. I mean, I uh, I most of my bosses in my entire life probably have not liked that trait about me. But I that direct communication does seem to get some ideas flowing, and yeah. I, I found that fascinating. I as can I was, relate to that as I was researching. Um, we we have time for about one more good solid question. Um, the, the theme of this series is technology and the future of work. And, and you've argued elsewhere that what we teach in schools today is almost entirely that type one innovation, es- essentially the old world, I think is how you, how you phrased it. Um, so, so going forward, you argue that every student should be proficient in four languages, their, their native language, the English language, mathematics, and computers, kind of those, those four broad language ideas. Uh, why, why do you prioritize it that way? I think that we need to teach people two types of things. One is that we need to teach people certain things that they need to know, because everything else that they will do in life will be built upon these, these topics. So these four languages, you cannot communicate without without these four languages. You cannot communicate. So the first two languages, you cannot communicate with people. And the other two languages, you cannot communicate with computers. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., you have the advantage uh, of learning only three languages because your native language is English. Um, but everybody else has to, has to figure out how to communicate in English because it became a uniform language of, of communications around the world and definitely of computers and definitely of internet, etc. So um, these are only four things that if you don't know one of them, it basically closes a bunch of doors immediately to you in the future because you would not be able to understand certain things or even communicate them without, without uh, knowing these languages. Everything else is, is uh, in my opinion, should be based on experience and uh, choice rather than um, learning by heart. History should be should be uh, taught by experience. Literature should be taught by experience. Uh, uh, the civic studies should be taught by experience. Well, you know, there are so many ways today uh, to to experience things through. Uh, virtual reality through games, through films, through anything, and it's all at our palms. So today, teaching it in a, in a way that basically asks you to memorize dates or, or events 
uh, instead of experiencing them is, in my opinion, is a silly proposition. So, so in America, we have something called uh, like experiential learning or, you know, there's language, you know, in, in the educational world that is trying to grapple with this too. But I wonder, um, on, on, I guess, talking about more of a, it sounds like you're talking about technique or um, how the world works in a way like training rather than education. And, and again, I, I admit I am more of a liberal arts kind of guy in my training and background and understanding um, in my own education. And so is, it, is there a dichotomy to, is there a tension here regarding the idea of merely knowing how computers work and, and the technique of it and what we should be doing with that technique. It's, it's kind of a philosophical question rather than a, than a technique question. Is if, if you don't have those soft skills, if you haven't memorized a little bit of Plato or, or poems, I think you've mentioned, you know, if, if everything is just you can open it up on your phone and your phone has the knowledge, are we missing something that it means to be human w- without those components? I don't mean that you would not read Plato. I mean that you would read Plato, but you would not have to memorize it. You would not have to pass an exam on it, at least in schools. I don't know how in college, you know, when you write papers, that's a different story. But I would rather see people uh, write write papers with their own thoughts based on, on Plato and trying to analyze, because the skill of remembering, the skill of knowing details is no longer valued. It used to be hugely valued. People were that were um, that were uh, that knew things and could memorize them uh, were hugely valued because there's need in that. Today, the the need for memorization and for for knowing uh, facts and and and, and events, etc., is much less valuable because every child has access to all that. So I think that. And, and, and in fact, in my opinion, when you force people to memorize things and to, to study them by heart and then to get tests, you uh, incentivize them to, to, to study for the test rather than to study for joy of studying, for, for curiosity, for, for experience of it, for excitement of it. If, if I understand you correctly, then your concern would be that if they don't have these four languages, it's really hard to learn those later in life, and, and, you, and you, you would be less adept in the modern world. You could still love some of these other um, subjects, but if you don't have these four, you're almost uh, injuring yourself in some way, like, like not being market prepared or, or something along those lines. Is, is, that what I, is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. It's like, you know, these four languages, in my opinion, are like the keys. And you don't know which door, which door you're going to walk through in your life, or which doors you're going to want to walk through in your life. But these four keys open all doors together. If if you're missing one key or two keys, you you cannot open many of the doors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Candle, you've given me a lot to think about. You've given us a lot to think about. Um, regard, it's fascinating, you know, to see where education will go, tra- training them or educating the the future students, you know, so that doors are more open to both men and women and across the globe as education um, and population uh, grows exponentially. But 
thank you for your time. Um, I really do appreciate you taking this call in Israel. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about the great work of Startup Nation Central. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Is there a moral argument for free trade? Join us for the next Acton on Tap event at the Knickerbocker in Grand Rapids on May 29 to hear Hillsdale College professor Michael Clark speak about the common misconceptions of trade deficits. You can register for this event at acton.org slash events. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're talking about the new HBO film, Fahrenheit 451, which debuts March 19th on HBO. Uh, the writer-director is Ramin Barani. It stars Michael Shannon, Michael B. Jordan as Guy Montag. And we're talking with Phil Nichols, who is the senior lecturer at the University of Wolverhampton and a senior advisor for the Center for Ray Bradbury in Indianapolis, Indiana. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Good afternoon. It's good to speak to you from this side of the Atlantic. Yes, uh, very much so. So you had an opportunity to uh, preview the new HBO film of Fahrenheit 451. And uh, I, I know that you have written extensively on the, the first film from 1966 by Francois Truffaut. And I, I know that Ray Bradbury actually liked the film. I, I thought it was lacking in, in many different ways. But anyway, let, let's get started. And... Uh, Tell me a little bit about the new film that stars uh, Michael B. Jordan as Guy Montag and Michael Shannon as Beatty, the, the two firemen. Well, the new film, I, I've seen it only once, and that was this weekend. Um, and in fact, I can't wait to watch it a few more times because I've been studying uh, Fahrenheit 451 for a number of years. Um, the new film, I think, is a pretty good adaptation, but it takes some liberties with the original text. But I think it works well as a film, um, and I'm I'm hoping that it will get a good response from viewers, and if anything, it will drive people to look at the book once more. Although I suspect some people who see the film may go to the book and then be surprised that there are differences between the two. Massive differences, and uh, there's massive differences between uh, this adaptation and the 1966 version. Uh, for uh, one, the character of Montag's wife is not even existent in, in the new version, and the character of Clarissa, the, the neighbor, is uh, very, very brief, very brief. Um, but, of course, she's brief in the book as well. Yeah, the the difference with um, Clarice in the, the the new film is yes, she she's only briefly there, but she does sort of exist all the way through the story, uh, whereas in the novel she um, she disappears, and it's her very disappearance that sort of triggers Montag's um, conversion, if you like, into being a book person. Um, but in the film, there's a sort of a developing relationship uh, between the two. That's in the new film. Um, so that's one of the changes. But you're absolutely right. Montag's wife just isn't there. He's, he doesn't have any kind of partner um, in this new film. And I have to admit that while I was watching it, that didn't bother me. Um, I, I, I've always thought that Bradbury's cast of characters was very carefully balanced um, and that you couldn't do the story if you took away um, Millie, the wife, or Clarice. Um, 
But in fact, it just about works without there being the wife. And I think it's because what they've done is they've they've kind of merged her with him in a way. So the sort of the drug taking habit um, of Millie in the book um, becomes Montag's drug taking habit. But it he's just like everyone else. He's taking these sort of eye drops that um, not only affect your vision, but uh, affect your memory as well. Um, so they they seem to have merged characteristics uh, of different characters, right? And and one of the other characters missing uh, from the book is uh, Professor Faber, yes, uh, who is quite critical in the, in the book. So uh, you know, I- I- explain who the character is in the book, if you would please, and then uh, how how you feel about his absence in in the film, actually in both films, for the most part, yes, yes. Um, Faber is um, a kind of one of the revolutionaries um, and in the novel he constantly speaks to Montag through an earpiece. Um, So as Montag is developing into this rebel against the system, um, he's actually being guided all the time by this Professor Faber. But Professor Faber's quite a a cowardly character. He he never comes out into the open. He stays sort of hidden away in his uh, loft or his attic. Um, so he's never really seen by anybody but Montag. Um, and he, he kind of acts a bit like a, a conscience for Montag. So while Mon- Montag is going through confrontations with uh, the fire chief, he's being guided all the time by this voice in his head, which is actually uh, Faber's voice in his earpiece. Now in the film, they've done away with that, just as Francois Truffaut did back in 1966. Um, and I think the reason for that is to give Montag more agency. I, I think if you did try to make a film with the Faber character, it would end up making Montag looking like something of a puppet, um, and he wouldn't be quite the heroic figure that a film typically demands. So I kind of forgive filmmakers for abandoning Professor Faber, um, as long as some of the function of Faber is represented somewhere in the other characters. And I think what both Truffaut did back in the 60s and Ramin Barani has done in this new film is that some of the aspects of Professor Faber have been transferred over to Clarice and to some of the other book people as well. So although the character of Faber doesn't exist, the, the, the function of the character still does exist to an extent. Um, but Montag is, is much more of a free agent making up his own mind rather than being told what to do by somebody else. Well, one of the uh, points that was brought up by our mutual friend Jonathan Eller in his essays uh, at the end of uh, the Fahrenheit 451 book that I I picked up over the weekend uh, was very telling. And uh, I I thought that I knew a lot about Ray Bradbury and Fahrenheit 451, but uh, it you could have knocked me over with a feather when I found that his major inspiration for writing Fahrenheit 451 was not McCarthyism and it wasn't the House Un-American Activities Committee, which everybody you know kind of defaults to, but it was actually Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, which is one of my, my all-time favorite novels. Mm, yes, indeed. Um, and and you can you can take it back perhaps further than that because Bradbury was writing the the sort of precursors to Fahrenheit four five one back in the nineteen forties, um, 
and he, he was influenced by the Nazi book burnings as much as anything. Um, but you, you're right, John Eller has traced the, the evolution of Bradbury's thought um, that leads to Fahrenheit 451. And it's very clear that um, people often say, well, Fahrenheit 451 must have been inspired by George Orwell's 1984. But in fact, there's no evidence that that is the case. And in fact, Kessler's Darkness at Noon is, is a much stronger source, um, attested to by Bradbury himself. So what was it? Uh, Bradbury was reacting to the Nazi book, book burning. He was reacting to what he read about uh, Arthur Kessler's uh, story of a man who is waiting his execution as a part of the uh, Stalin's show trials. But uh, what was it that he was trying to speak of at the time that he wrote the novel? What, was there something in the... Uh, in the air, so to speak, in the United States when, or in, in the world at large, when he wrote this book? Was, he, was this just, uh, it, it wasn't just for entertainment value. He, he, he was actually had a theme, a message that he was trying to parlay, did he not? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's quite evident. Um, the, the difficulty in, in sort of pinning it down to a specific incident or a specific historical event is that Bradbury was writing this work over a number of years. This is something we often overlook um, with authors. We assume that if a book came out in 1953, it was written in that year in response to what's going on in that year. But in fact, Fahrenheit 451 uh, was written originally as a much shorter work called The Fireman um, a couple of years earlier than the publication of Fahrenheit 451 as we know it today. And even prior to that, it was... Um, prefigured by some other shorter works that Bradbury had, had written. So his thought was developing really through the 1940s and the 1950s. Now, by the time Fahrenheit 451 comes out, um, the book, uh, the novel, very much is reflecting on the potential influence of television, which was a new medium that had sort of just come in at that point. It was apparently reflecting on uh, the McCarthyism, that was developing in the US. Um, but it's very difficult to pin it down as being triggered by a single event. It's more a sort of an evolution of a thought process, um, which finally finds its its um, full form in Fahrenheit 451. Um, but the Nazi book burnings, the Stalinist regime, um, and McCarthyism were among those many sort of real world influences. Well. What do you think the new movie addresses? In, in the, the 1966 version by Francois Truffaut, uh, it, it, it almost at that point in time seems kind of dated and borderline comical, uh, of kind of a parody of itself because, well, who burns books? And that's just never going to happen. And yes, we are amusing ourselves to death through television and video walls and, and what have you. But uh, perhaps maybe the, the film might have been better off if uh, Truffaut, Truffaut had made it in the French language as opposed to kind of the broken English that uh, comes through. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the problems with the Truffaut film. It was directed by a man who uh, spoke no English. Um, and yet it was made in England with 
um, a cast that was a combination of British, Irish um, and Austrian actors. So it's a very um, strange film, even if uh, the script were a perfect script, which it isn't, um, it would always be a very odd film because of that, that circumstance. Um, Truffaut was a book lover, undoubtedly. He was a film lover, but he was also an immense book lover. And that clearly drives the film for him. Um, but in a strange way, because the, the burning of the books is probably the most beautiful aspect of Truffaut's film. So even though he hates the idea of censorship and book burning, um, he actually took delight in burning books <laughs> for the purpose of the of the camera. Um, I, I think the uh, what Truffaut's film um, reflects most of all is the kind of Marshall McLuhan um, view of media uh, of the 1960s, the, uh, the idea of the global village, um, the idea of uh, television as kind of taking over um, from other media. Um, but you're right, when we look at the Truffaut film now, it does look quite dated. Um, the massive wall screen television looks really tiny compared to the, the real TVs that we have today. So it is quite a comical film in some respects from its production design. I think what the new film does um, very cleverly is suggest to us how book burning could still be relevant today. I've seen over the years a number of people say, well, Fahrenheit 451 can't be that relevant anymore because books are not that important. We have e-books, so even if books are burned, there would still be e-books, there's still the internet, all of these media are text-based. And I think what the new film does is um, show how modern media have become very focused on the soundbite and uh, the short text um, so that people see short headlines and react to those headlines but never go any deeper than the headline right right you see you see Beatty Beatty is basically writing down these little aphorisms as little fortune cookie that he twists up and and one of the other things that uh, I, I think the the new film addresses quite well is that uh, you know, Beatty tells Montag that Huckleberry Finn was banned because, you know, some people were offended by Mark Twain's use of a particular epithet. And then he picks up a copy of Richard Wright's Native Son and tells him that other people, uh, we are to presume perhaps maybe that it's, um, you know, more fascistic uh, whites, uh, wanted that one banned for different reasons. And when, and when Montag asked Beatty, what the, what it was that they didn't like about it, uh, he, he doesn't even respond. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably the, the highlight of the film for me is that scene, um, which um, is, is based very clearly on a scene in the novel, um, but it's using a, ver a very different angle um, from Beatty. But I, I, I really like that idea that... Um, Beatty is alluding to um, books being banned for racism or perceived racism, but the response from Montag, who in this film is black, in case people aren't aware of that, um, who, people who haven't seen it yet, um, this Montag is black, and yet he reacts with this kind of blank face, um, as if to say, none of us know anything about our history. 
Um, Beatty seems to know a bit about history, whether it's true history or not, we have no way of knowing. We only have his word for it. Um, but it's very clear that, on the whole, the people in this world know very little about their past. Um, and that's reinforced by these um, eye drop drugs that um, Montag is shown uh, taking constantly through the film, is that they appear to impair people's memory and their, their ability to um, to think and to reason. So the, the film really is very much addressing modern media and modern concerns, I think, in a way that the Truffaut film doesn't do for us anymore, although I think at the time Truffaut's film was dealing with concerns of the 1960s. But I think this film is is the, the 2018 um, story that we need, really, and it very much shows that Fahrenheit 451 is relevant today, if taken in this form. Okay, well, um, let's close out by you uh, explaining to listeners who may not uh, have read this book when they were in high school. Uh, it was required when, when I was a high school student, and uh, I went and read all the Bradbury I could get my hands on back in my, my teen years anyway. But uh, for Fahrenheit 451 refers to... Uh, Fahrenheit 451 is the temperature at which book paper catches fire, allegedly, according to the novel. Um, I don't think anybody knows for real if that is the actual temperature, but that's what Bradbury tells us it is. Okay, that theory has never been lab tested. Um, not as far as I know. <laughs> Brad okay. Bradbury. Well, great. I am. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say Bradbury supposedly phoned up um, a fire station and asked the fire chief um, what the temperature was when paper burned, and the fire chief told him it was. 451 degrees. Um, whether that fire chief really existed, whether he was telling the truth, or whether he was just making something up, who knows? <laughs> well, I am a Bradbury fan. You are a Bradbury fan and scholar. So uh, your recommendation for listeners would be to check out the, the new Ramin Barani version on HBO? I would recommend people check it out. Yeah, if you've already read the book, I think you will find there are things here to enjoy. Um, you may be slightly annoyed to see your favourite scenes are not present or are not done as well as they might have been. Um, and you might be a little bit confused, as I was, by the introduction of a few plot twists that were never there in the book. Um, if you've never read Fahrenheit 451, I would say watch the film, but then go and read the book because the two stories have very similar plots, but there is more to the novel than there is to the film. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm talking to Phil Nichols, who is the senior lecturer at the University of Wolverhampton and a senior advisor of the Center for Ray Bradbury in Indianapolis, Indiana. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And for Upstream This Week, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you again. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you to all our listeners out there. And if you would like to learn more about the Acton Institute, check out our website at actonacton.org. While you're there, head over to our blog page, where you can read daily articles from staff, along with podcast show notes, providing you with more information on our podcast episodes. If you'd like to reach out to our podcast team for questions or to simply let us know what you think of the show, email us at rfa at 
or you can leave us a message at 888-705-4180. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.